One day the Pharisees and scribes found themselves frustrated with Jesus. Again. This man receives sinners and he eats with them, they said. You can see this in Luke 15 too. They were infuriated, disgusted, appalled. Now, let's pause right here and let me give you some insight into how things worked in the ancient world because the fact that Jesus was eating with them is the loaded canon. Now today, eating isn't that big of a deal. We'll eat wherever, with whomever, whenever. In their culture though, things were different. Dining together was almost a solemn act. It signified something more. It denoted that you were pledging yourselves to another person to live in community with them. It was an, I've got your back and you've got mine type of declaration. Now, once you know this, it makes sense that God made a covenant with Abraham regarding the birth of Isaac as they shared a meal in Genesis 18, one and following or that the Passover was based around a meal and was said to be celebrated every year by reenacting the same meal in Exodus 12, or, or that sacrifices in the temple, they often involved a meal that the worshiper would eat in the presence of God. You can see this in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7, 11 through 34, or, or that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples in the upper room, pointing to himself as the significance of a meal. Luke 22:15, Or one more, that followers of Jesus in the New Testament era celebrated communion, not with grape juice and crackers or even wine and crackers and bread. They celebrated communion as a full meal, according to 1 Corinthians 11:20. Now these covenant ceremonies in the Bible, no, notice they're all centered around eating. They each have special significance. They're each unique moments, but all eating was important not just meals that centered around religious or covenant ceremonies. Anytime you ate with someone, anyone, you were offering yourself to them in some significant way. In other words, God used a social convention with which people were already extremely familiar to show his allegiance to them. And that's why the Pharisees would often ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's why Jesus never answered with, well, well, I'm hungry, and they invited me to dinner. R rather, he usually says something like, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Or, or he says something like, he says in Matthew 9, 11 through 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. In, in other words, he was inferring, not only do I not feel like I need to dissociate myself from these shady characters, but these are the very people to whom I've come to pledge myself and walk with. And clearly, Jesus wasn't repulsed by sinners, quite the opposite, he embraced them. Now, one occasion when Jesus was confronted with this question, a question he was asked multiple times throughout his ministry, he paused and he told a story to illustrate why he did this. The Pharisees postured with their customary grumbling, followed by a public judgment regarding Jesus' choice of friends, something they commonly did. And then in order to explain his position, Jesus did three things. Number one, he asked a question. Number two, he made a hypothetical assumption. And then number three, he told them one of the most famous stories of all time. Let's look at all three. First, the question. It's in Luke 15, three through seven. Jesus asked the crowd, if you had 100 sheep and you lost one, would you just forget about the one you lost and think, hmm, 
I've still got 99 others. No, you would search for that sheep and you would celebrate when you found it, right? They all agreed this is exactly what they would do. No one would leave a sheep behind. And the second, the hypothetical assumption, it's in Luke 15, 8 and 9, just the next verses. Jesus continued his discourse by making a common sense declaration about a woman possessing 10 silver coins. If she lost one of them, Jesus said, she would turn the house upside down until she found it, right? She wouldn't just think, I've got nine, that's good enough. Well, the Pharisees agreed. They'd frantically search if they lost a coin too, and they would celebrate when they found the missing money. Third, the famous story. It's Luke 15, 11 and following, and you may actually know what it is. Now, let me spoil the end of it for you. He's about to cast them, those Pharisees, as the whiny older brother in this tale about a father and his two sons. I'm telling you that now because I want you to read and listen and explore the story with me with that in mind. Now, you know the tale. A man had two sons. The older was, like the Pharisees, a compliant rule keeper. The younger was a rebel. Both of them, though, harbored poison in their hearts. Well, one day, the younger approached his dad and he asked for his share of the entire estate. Here's the equivalent of what he actually communicated according to that culture. Hey, Dad, you have a lot of resources here. I'll get them when you die, I know, because I'll inherit my share of all of this, but I don't want to wait for you to die in order to get on with living my life. So can you go ahead and give me what's coming to me? And can we just part ways as if you're dead to me and I'm dead to you? Yeah, say what? Yes. Every Pharisee listening to that story knew exactly what was being communicated, and they knew that according to the law, according to Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, Moses had outlined this for them, that kid should be stoned for disrespect. And it was common for the lead accuser to toss the first stone, which might be why Jesus responded the way he did uh, to those who accused the woman in John chapter 8 of being caught in adultery. Hey, we caught her. Okay, the one without sin cast the first stone. In other words, what's going on right here in this story in Luke 15 is that father culturally should have been, theoretically, the lead executioner. However, the father does the unthinkable. He actually gifts the son his share of the estate and predictably, without the skill to manage those resources, the young man ends up squandering all of them. His bad luck gets even worse when a famine hits in Luke 15, 14. Ironically, the young man finds himself working in a pig pen, an animal that was considered to be unclean by all Jews. And despite all of his begging and all of his whatever in that culture they use for the will work for food signs, no one gives him anything. And you think about it, no one had it. There's a famine going on. Everyone's resources are exhausted. So he's forced to eat the leftovers after the pigs in the pig pen have finished. Now, notice what happens in the story next. I'm going to read Luke 15, 17 to 19. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is the moment where a lot of Bible scholars say the son truly repented. But notice what really happened, because this doesn't seem like repentance at all to me. First, 
he realized that the servants at his dad's estate had it better than he does. Second, he knew that he would die of starvation if he didn't take immediate action. Third, he decided to go home and request to be one of those hired servants. In other words, it's a very self-serving plan, isn't it? And he doesn't seem to be returning because he's remorseful. He's simply hungry. Well, as he approaches his former home, his father sees him from a distance. Apparently, his dad has been looking for him, eagerly anticipating that he'd probably lose everything he was given, and then eventually he'd make his way back home. As the boy nears the property, the father feels compassion rise up inside of him, and he runs to his son. He embraces him. He kisses him. Now, there are two things that any grown man who owned an estate would never do in that culture, ever. They were taboo. They were as frowned upon as Jesus hanging out with the shady cast of characters that he keeps moving towards. First, a grown man wouldn't run. Not in public, and definitely not for a wayward kid, someone that he should have stoned. Second, a grown man wouldn't show that type of emotion and affection, ever. But I love what the father does next after breaking these taboos because it breaks, it just blasts through every mindset that that boy had when he approached the house. The father, number one, dresses his son in the best robe. Number two, he places a ring on his hand. Number three, he offers him shoes. It makes you wonder why he gave him these specific gifts. Well, first, by placing the robe on the son, the father sets his identity back on the boy. He claims the son is his own. This means that the townspeople who would likely have stoned the boy upon his return, they can't. Not anymore. The son is protected from the accusers. Well, the Bible tells us that we wear robes of righteousness in Isaiah 61.10 and in other passages. And in the same way that God offered Adam and Eve clothes to cover their shame in Genesis 3.21, so also does he offer us a cloak that covers us, denoting us as his own. But our covering's better. God doesn't robe us with something separate from himself. He actually cloaks us with his presence. Galatians 3.27 says that we are now, get this, clothed in Christ. By the way, Joseph's coat, you remember Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat back in Genesis 37, 1 through 4? That coat meant that he didn't work in the fields like his brothers. He lived from a place of rest. And so the father is telling the son that he is not a servant. He is not a laborer in the field. In addition, second, by offering his son a ring, that was the second gift, the father grants him authority to administrate and to enter into contracts in the family name. He gives him dominion and decision-making power. Now, grasp that. Even though the son had squandered everything he'd already been given, even though he obviously doesn't make great decisions, the father gave him another chance. Immediately. No trial period, no testing phase required. Something that, let's just be honest, People, human people, often church people don't do. We tend to do it the other way and say, you're disqualified or got to prove yourself, not the father. Third, finally, this father gave his son sandals. In that culture, slaves and servants didn't wear shoes. It was commonly believed that they would run away if they had shoes on. 
So the fact that the father gives him shoes, it shows us that he trusts his son to come and go from the state, empowering him to act as he pleases, even though he, he could, now get this, he could theoretically run away because he has shoes on. He could enter into a stack of contracts in the father's name because he has that ring, and he would be untouchable as he did because he had that robe. In other words, there are no restraints placed on the son's freedom. In theory, he could wear the robe, grab the signet ring, march into town, and squander the remainder of the estate. The father believes in him that much. Now, just an observation. I've said it a few times on this podcast and other episodes. I've been told over and over that the crux of the gospel is to believe in God. But notice in this story, the one that Jesus tells, the emphasis seems to be that God the Father believes in you. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned the son's repentance and how self-serving it seemed. I'll go home and work my father's fields, he said, because I'm hungry and at least I won't starve. I don't think that's true repentance. You probably don't either. The more and more I reread the story, the more I sense that the true moment of repentance is when the father offers the son the robe and that ring and that shoe. Will he wear it? Will he wear them? Will he accept his identity as a son? Or will he choose to work and earn his position in the house? Of course, you, you got to have a meal, right? It wouldn't be a biblical celebration without one. So the father brings out the fattened calf, the one that they've been plumping and juicing up for just such an occasion as this, according to Luke 15.23. And then the older brother... He's our Pharisee. He hears the dancing and singing from the mill as, now get this, what he's doing, as he works in the fields. As he approaches the estate, he asks the servants about all the commotion. Well, your brother's return, they tell him. Your father killed the prized calf and he's throwing a big party. Now, as Jesus communicates the story, he says the older brother gets angry about this and he refuses to attend the party. He says this in Luke 15, 28. Now, Step back, pause. Let's remember why Jesus launched into this tale in the first place. Remember, he has a cadre of religious elitists who've been following all the rules, watching others squander the estate, and wondering why Jesus dared cozy up to them. It was compounded by the fact that centuries earlier, Moses taught the people that if they followed the rules, they would be able to live in the promised land forever. And if they didn't, they'd be exported from the land or enslaved by others who ruled over them. That was in Deuteronomy 28. Most of the Pharisees knew enough history to sense that this seemed to be how things worked. Their ancestors had experienced the period of the judges in which they'd been beaten ruthlessly. Uh, Their great-great-great-grandparents had been sacked by the Assyrians and Babylonians, and they had seen the temple destroyed and rebuilt. Even then, they lived under Roman occupation, enduring heavy taxation and overbearing oppression. They knew what it was like to not be free. And moreover, many of them believed that strict adherence to the Old Testament law, it would create an environment where God could move, and then he could thrust off their oppressors, thereby bringing in the age of the kingdom of God. So, the more Jesus embraced sinners, the more he seemed to thwart this restoration. He encouraged the very people who were keeping God's blessings from the nation is what they reasoned. This was a point of high contention between them and Jesus. And remember, Jesus told them this story about the prodigal 
to answer why he entertains the very ones whose disobedience seems to be the cause of their ongoing calamity. He told this story to answer that question. Now, notice the parallels. In the same way that the Pharisees refused to come near to God, Jesus is God in the flesh, right? Because of the riffraff people hanging close to God, the older brother refuses to go near his father because of the squanderer that's near him. The stance effectively keeps the older brother and the Pharisees religiously reasoning and at a distance from other people and at a distance from God himself, the father. But but not for long because the father breaks another social rule. Now get this. The father leaves the banqueting table at his own party in Jesus' story and he pursues the older brother out in the field. I imagine he offered the same grace as he sought this son too. However, the older brother, he puts distance between him and his father because he can't reconcile the grace that's being offered. Notice he says, he says this, this son of yours has returned. He doesn't say in Luke 15, 29, that this brother of mine is back. He can't stand the fact that they're related to one another. He even points out issues in his father's behavior, uh, much like the Pharisees try to poke holes in Jesus' behavior. He he says, you you never gave me a party. He says, all all these years that I never disobeyed you, and yet you never even offered me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You can probably, I can, uh, imagine the scribes saying something like this to Jesus. Why why do you dine with tax collectors and sinners? And then the follow-up. Why don't you commune with us? I mean, that's the follow-up question, isn't it? And it's why Jesus repeatedly tells them, those who are well have no need of a physician. See that repeatedly. Or, or to say it another way, y- you are well. You, you don't need a doctor. A- and even this, I've not come to call righteous people, but sinners in Mark 2.17. It's like you can almost see Jesus commending them when you read things from this perspective. I mean, in other verses, he actually boasts about their righteousness, according to Matthew 5.20 and Matthew 23.23. And furthermore, I imagine Jesus would say to those same Pharisees, Hey, I would love for you to come to this party too. Uh, the one with the tax collectors and sinners and harlots and others. You don't have to change who you are to come inside. You just need to accept them for who they are like I have. Only then will you be able to call forth the greatness that's inside of them. Perhaps this is why he looked at a group of religious zealots one day and said, harlots and tax collectors enter the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's in Matthew 21, 31. It's not that the Pharisees weren't welcome. It's just that they were, uh, what's the phrase? They, They were older brothering it. They wouldn't go in if less desirable people were already at the party. So like the older brother, they kept working in the field. They continued serving God with the tiniest minutia of the law, even doing things like tithing the spices in their kitchen cabinet, according to Matthew 23, 23. Well, the father in Jesus' story reminds the older brother that he always has and always will have, always had past, present, and future, access to the entire estate, according to Luke 15.31. As such, he could have taken a goat and celebrated any time he wanted to. He couldn't grasp it, though, because in the end, he really believes some of the things that we, you, me, wrongly believe. Things like 
following all of the rules is what gives us favor with the Father, and not following them all should exclude others, and sometimes even us, from favor. And we, we enter the Father's estate by grace through no effort of our own, but then we have to work and prove that we really deserve to be there, effectively putting ourselves back in a position of servants instead of sons. The truth is that both boys were focused on themselves and their part of the state. They just expressed it in different ways at different times. Th this means that for the older brother, the moment of repentance would have been to do the exact same thing as the younger brother, stop seeing himself as a servant, and embrace the fact that he is and always has been a son. In other words, put on the robe, the ring, and the shoes, and stop fighting for what's been freely offered. You see, whether you're a rebel or a rule keeper, the response is the same. Jesus embraces both. Well, most people, they refer to Jesus' story as the story of the prodigal son. I think it's mistitled, though. You see, the word prodigal, it has two meanings. Do a quick Google search and you'll see it for yourself. Meaning number one is this, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Meaning number two is having or giving something on a lavish scale. An example of definition two that I found on a quick web search, you know, having or giving something on a lavish scale, it said the dessert was crunchy with brown sugar and prodigal with whipped cream. In other words, prodigal is extra, excessive, abundant. And when we read the story based on the younger son, we focus on the first use of the word prodigal, like spending frivolously, wasting freely, extravagantly. We focus on sin, rebellion, and shortcomings. But what if we focused on that second definition about having or giving something on a lavish scale? Who then, according to that definition, is the prodigal? In this story, is it not the father? See, the father is the one who viewed his son as a son, even after the son wished him dead so that he could acquire his inheritance and move on with his life. The, the father is the one who offered both sons, the rebel and the rule keeper, the position and authority to do anything they wished with the estate, even while he still lived. He gave them complete authority. The father is the one who, all social norms, to pursue the rebel and the rule keeper. Now, all that said, here's the deal. Even if you listen to the words of the Bible, you might want to make sure you listen to them in the right way, that the words are breathing life, hope, and dreams into you rather than sucking the wind out of your sails. And that requires sitting at the master's feet, hearing his voice, finding yourself captivated by the wonder of grace, by the beauty of reconciliation, by the hope of all things made new, overwhelmed by the true nature of prodigal love. People who do so stand secure in their identity as sons and daughters, which is what we talked about in part one of this entire series. They walk in the presence of God as a way of life and exude spirit, which is what we talked about in part two. And they allow God full access to express himself through them, which is the essence of using your gifts, your abilities, is the Spirit moving through you as you are a conduit, a connector to the kingdom of God that is loaded with not just supernatural power, but lavish prodigal grace. The overflow of that is an undeniable expression of the gifts all delivered, again, in lavish, excessive 
prodigal love. My prayer for you as I sign off is that the Lord would bless you. He would keep you. He'd be gracious and shine his face of favor upon you that that favor, that that love, that that grace would penetrate every mindset that you have and that you would see that you're accepted as a son, as a daughter. May you put on the robe and the identity. May you put on the ring and have the authority that he's gifted you to to bless others with the presence of the kingdom. May you put on the shoes and know that everywhere you go, you're, you're, you're blessed and you're there to bless other people. May you see all of that and may you realize that, that you don't receive your position by grace and, and then keep it by earning it, by working, by enslaving it, but, but it's grace that brings you in and it's grace that continues. Until next time, grace, peace. Shalom.